Good morning, Harvest. I was reading from Psalm 119 this morning and I came across this beautiful prayer, which I'd like to use uh, this morning as we come to God's Word. So it comes from, it's just one verse, Psalm 119, verse 18. The psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And at that time, the Bible was the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Now, of course, we have a whole lot more to draw on. And that's what we pray. Father God, open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things out of your word today. Amen. Oh, let me just put my... You don't need to stop, Don. I'm just putting this on airplane mode. We don't want to be disturbed. Good. Well, here we are. Another week of, um, of chaos in Zimbabwe and I... <laughs> Yeah, COVID has just unleashed its own particular brand of chaos on us again. And it's true to say that COVID has affected just about every area of our lives and not least our church lives. Uh, the church is very different today. It looks very different to what it looked like even um, 18 months ago. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking about it this week, you know, with every wave of COVID coming in and breaking in on the shore, we think it's the last one, but it isn't. And yet I still hear people saying, I can't wait until things get back to normal and we can get back to doing proper church. And of course, that statement in itself begs quite a few questions. I mean, for example, what is normal? And will we ever get back to normal? And if what we're doing now isn't proper church, does that mean that we're doing improper church? I, I hope there is nothing improper happening in Harvest at the moment. There certainly isn't here, is there, Don? We are having entirely proper church here this morning. There is um, a, a theologian called uh, Millard Erickson who makes a very interesting observation. He says that just about everybody, even non-Christians, have a set of beliefs about the church, a doctrine, if you like, about the church. They, they don't have a set of beliefs about the return of Christ or about the person of God, but everybody has a doctrine of the church. And the reason for that is that the church is a, an observable social phenomenon. So we can have a look at churches, they're visible, we can study them, and we can draw our own conclusions and, our, and write our own definition about what the church is, what it does, what its mission is, what it's supposed to look like, what the church is supposed to do, and everybody has an opinion on it. The problem is that if we define the church based on social observation, we're going to get unstuck very quickly. Let me take, for example, um, aliens in a UFO gliding down Churchill Avenue. They've been told that there are churches meeting on Churchill Avenue. They would come to the conclusion that a church is a group of 50 or less black people meeting with long flowing white garments. But then if they hooked a left onto Borodell Road and zoomed over the celebration center, they would have to revisit their definition. So what we need to do, the best way and in fact, the only way to define the church is to find out how God defines it in his revelation to us, the Bible, the scriptures. And that's what this series that we are embarking on now is all about. 
we're going to be unpacking from the Bible the nature, the mission, the function, the unity, and the structure of the church. That's five sermons. The nature, the mission, the function, the unity, and the structure of the church. And as a matter of fact, we've been going through this process as an eldership over the last few months because we've been wanting to find out how God defines the church so that we can come up with a model of church that conforms to God's definition and is also appropriate to the social setting that we find ourselves in now with COVID restrictions and various other things so that we can make sure that we are doing proper church and not improper church. So today what we're going to do is start off with the nature of the church. The Bible uses some very powerful images to describe the nature of the church. And there's this theologian called Paul Minier. Um, he written a book called Images of the Church in the New Testament. And he suggests that there are over a hundred such images in the New Testament. And you'll be glad to hear that we're only going to look at three of them today. These are the most prominent ones, the most oft-repeated ones. In fact, they are the go-to images that Paul goes to a lot of the time in his letters. And one of the reasons why he does this is because these images stress the Trinitarian nature of God. So what are they? First of all, there is the church as the body, I beg your pardon, as the people of God, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. Can you see the Trinitarian nature of God in there? The people of God, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. So let's start off, first of all, with the people of God. In the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, there are numerous references to Israel as the people of God. And then in the New Testament, God includes Gentiles in his people. So Paul quotes an Old Testament prophecy from Hosea to teach us this in Romans 9, 24 to 26. He says, even us, referring to himself and the church in Rome, which was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, even us whom he has called not only from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will also be called sons of the living God. Zimbabwe, for example. At one time, years and years ago, Zimbabwe and other nations were not places where the people of God were found, but now they are. And Paul goes on to do something similar again in 2 Corinthians, where he uses another Old Testament quote about the people of Israel to show that God has decided to make all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, all of them, his people. God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This means that the church is made up of God's people. There's something very significant about this. When we talk about the church as God's people, we are emphasizing God's initiative in coming up with the church and setting up the church. And this is expressed in the Bible in two ways, with the fact that God chose who his people would be 
and then he recreated them so that they could become his people. Consider God's initiative in choosing and creating Israel. God exercised his initiative by choosing Abraham. One man, Abraham. And then through Abraham, he created a totally unique people, a nation. So he didn't choose or adopt an existing nation. No, he chose Abraham out of many people and he created his own nation amongst many nations through Abraham, the nation of Israel, God's people. And God's initiative in choosing and creating applies to his New Testament people as well. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesus? He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth. I beg your pardon, I'm quoting from the wrong, from the wrong scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here it comes. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in insight. Before the foundation of the world, God exercised his initiative to choose. We are God's people. Why? Because he chose us. And then later on in chapter 2, Paul explains how Christ's death on the cross made it possible for God to break down the barriers between those he had chosen who were Jewish and were Gentiles. I'm quoting here, that he might create in himself, create in himself, in, in Jesus, one new man in place of the two. So God has chosen who his people are. God has recreated his people so that they can become his people. There are two implications of this. One, that flow, flows from the fact that God chose us. And secondly, that he recreated us or created us as his people. The first one that flows from the fact that God shows his initiative by choosing us. What is the implication? We don't get to be choosy. You see, God chose you. Now that in itself beggars the imagination. But as Western people, because we're very individualistic, we tend to focus on the fact that God has chosen me. We don't concentrate on the fact that God has chosen us. And the implication here is that God chose that person who really irritates you. Or maybe that person who offends you. Maybe every time you're going through something or you're struggling with something, they somehow manage to minimize what you're going through. It also means that God chose that person who comes from a different culture, a different background, a different race. God chose them. And it cost God to recreate them. So God alone gets to choose. We don't get to be choosy. He has chosen who is going to be as part of his people. And we need to accept others. We need to love others that we wouldn't otherwise choose or accept or love. We don't get to be choosy. Second implication this is one that flows from the fact that God has recreated us, shown his initiative by recreating us. It means, folks, that we belong to God. Every member of God's people carries a mark or a brand 
of ownership. In the Old Testament, it was the external mark of circumcision. Circumcision was an external sign of the covenant that made the people of Israel God's people. But did you know that under the New Testament covenant, God's people still carry that mark of circumcision? The New Testament writers write, it, uh, write about it as circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart speaks of the recreation that has happened to those that belong to God. Romans 2.29 Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit and not by the letter. By the letter referring to the law, the fact that the law required people to be circumcised. Now, it's not something that's done by the hand of man, it's something that is done by the hand of the spirit on the human heart. And then he writes again, Paul, in, in Philippians 3.3, 3, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. Now, because the church belongs to God, here are a few things that God does for us. The fact that we have been, in a sense, marked or branded by God. First of all, he protects us. Think of it this way. When you come across a demon, for example, that demon will immediately see the mark of God on your heart. And that means that you belong to God. And there is no way that you can ever be stolen from God once you have had that mark of internal circumcision on your heart. It's a very encouraging thing. We can't be stolen from God. So he protects us. He also provides for us. Interestingly, one of the ways that God provides for you is through the body of Christ. And we'll come to that a little bit more later on. So he protects us, he provides for us, and he takes pride in us. Folks, none of us should diss and run down the church of God because the church of God is the apple of God's eye. He protects it. It belongs to him. He takes pride in it. But since we belong to God, works both ways, doesn't it? There are certain things that we need to do for him. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him. Now, what does it say after that? To be holy and blameless in his sight. Folks, we are to be pure. God has sanctified us, Paul tells us in Ephesians, through Christ's death on the cross, that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. We are set apart for God and not set apart for sin. So the implication is that we are to be holy. And we're also to be loyal, not idols, worshippers. You know, the church is not about certain people. We're not to be loyal to certain people. This is not the church. Harvest is not the church of Ian Ray or of Craig Roberts. No, it is God's church. We are His people. And we mustn't allow our, um, our uh, commitments to be divided because God has called us to be loyal to Him. Let's not be loyal to anything else in all of creation, because everything else in all of creation 
is set in a different category to God. God is separate because He created all things. So let's not worship and idolize things that are created. Let's worship and idolize our Creator. We are to be pure. We are to be loyal. So we, the church, here at Harvest and the Church Universal, are God's people. We're also described, now we come to the second image, as the body of Christ. God the Father, now God the Son. The image of the church as Christ's body is applied to the church universally in Ephesians 1, to 23 It says there, And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Then he describes what the church is, which is his body, Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So it's applied to the church universally. It's also applied to individual local congregations. So when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a local individual church congregation, in chapter 12, verse 27 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Now you, the church in Corinth, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So folks, we are the body of Christ and you individually are a member of of it. Let's have a look at some of the implications of this. The first one is that the church is the focal point of Christ's activity on the earth. So at one time when Christ was here, God in the flesh, he was the focal point of God's activity on the earth. But then Christ left to go back to be with his father and he gave us a great commission to fulfill. He said, you are now going to be the focal point of what my Father is doing on earth. You need to fulfill this great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching, baptizing, etc., etc. And that activity is going to be done with far more um, intensity by us, the church, than it was possible for Christ to do as one person on earth. And John talks about this in John chapter 14, verse 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So the church is the focal point of Christ's activity. That's one of the implications of being the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet now here on earth. Second implication is that Christ is the head of the church. He writes in Colossians 1, 17 and 18, this is a lovely verse, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. So the church doesn't exist for any one person. It doesn't exist for Ian Ray. It doesn't exist for Prophet Magaya. It doesn't exist for politicians who are seeking to manipulate the church to their own ends. No, it exists for God and for Christ. And as the head, Christ rules the church. Colossians 2, 9 to 10. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the implications of the body of Christ as 
the, as, as an image is that the church is the focal point of Christ's activity. Christ is the head. Um, body is, is nourished by Christ as the head. And then there is an interconnectedness between all of us. That's the third implication. Folks, there are no lone rangers in the body of Christ. You can't grow if you are disconnected from the body of Christ. Because God has provided everybody else, all the other members in the body, so that you will grow and be edified and be taught, etc., etc. So we are interconnected. There's no such thing as being a lone ranger. There's no such thing as being a Christian but disconnected from the body of Christ. Another implication, fellowship. Folks, the fact that we are the body of Christ means that there is not just merely a social interconnectedness between us. The kind of social interconnectedness that you might find um, in, in a, a round table club or some sort of other society. No, no, it means that there needs to be a genuine concern and support for other members who are in your local church congregation. You need to be praying for them. You need to be supporting them, whether it's financially or providing meals or emotional support or, as I said just now, prayer support. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, it says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. That's because we're part of the same body. And if one member is honored, we all rejoice together. So there needs to be this fellowship, this, this deep empathy for other members in our local church congregation. And it also means that we need to build each other up. Ephesians 4, 15 to 16 says, Speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Can you see that the body only builds itself up in love when it is joined and held together, when each part is working properly, using whatever gift it has been equipped with to build up the body. It, then the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. So the church is, folk, church is the focal point of Christ's activity. Christ is the head. There's an interconnectedness. We can't be lone rangers. There needs to be this fellowship of building one another up, a deep empathy for one another, praying for one another. And then there also needs to be a dimension of universality in the church. The church needs to be universal. Colossians 3.11 Here in the church there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. God has chosen people from every nation, tribe, tongue, background. And the church is universal. We cannot exclude anybody on the basis of race. And we cannot entertain racism in our hearts and in our body here at Harvest. The church is universal. So, we've covered two of the images so far. The church is God's people. The church is Christ's body. Lastly, let's have a look at the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit brought the church into being on the day of Pentecost. That's when the, the church under the new covenant was inaugurated, when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers. The Spirit brought the church into being. And it continues, or he continues, to populate the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. The Holy Spirit brought the church into being. The Holy Spirit continues to populate the church. The Holy Spirit dwells in the church, both on an individual and a collective basis. So there are instances in the Bible where it says that you, singular, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but where it also says that we, collectively, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What is a temple? In Old Testament times, a temple was a place where a God dwelt. And so, using that image, God dwells amongst us as individuals and collectively. He also imparts life to the church. If you want to look at something to see whether it's growing, uh, to see whether it's alive, you look to see whether it's growing. And if you're looking at a plant, then you look to see whether it is bearing fruit. And of course, the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things are the fruit of the Spirit. They come from the Spirit. They are proof or, or a proof of life, if you like. If we don't see that fruit in our body here at harvest, then there's a problem. And of course, I do see that fruit in so many different places and in so many different people. The Holy Spirit imparts life to us. The church is not a dead place. It is a place that's living, and we see evidence of that in the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit also empowers us. Acts 1 verse 8, But you will receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, referring to the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit started the church, Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. He imparts life to us. He empowers us. He equips us. God has given different gifts to the church and these are described as the gifts of the Spirit. We need these gifts to equip us to build up the body of Christ, to make sure that members of the body of Christ are properly fed, are properly led, are properly encouraged, exhorted, and so on and so forth. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit sensitizes us to the Lord's leading. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel that the Holy Spirit will remind us of the things that God has said. The, the Holy Spirit also helped people to, to figure out what God was doing in his mission with the church. So if you take Peter, for example, he went up onto his roof to pray one day and the Holy Spirit provided a vision of a sheet coming down with all sorts of unclean animals. And he said, Peter, go ahead, kill and eat. And Peter said, no way, I'm not going to do that. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. What a strange vision. 
But it came from the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit continued working in Peter and helped him to interpret that vision to mean that God was now starting to increase or expand his ministry into the area of the Gentiles. And so Peter went to the house of Cornelius and he shared the gospel and people were saved and the Holy Spirit came upon them. That was the Holy Spirit sensitizing Peter to the Lord's leading. The Holy Spirit does all of these amazing things. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, what I'd encourage you to do is to reflect on these three different images of the church during the week ahead. Allow God's revelation of the church to define your concept of what church is. And also allow the implications of this to both comfort you It's very comforting to know that we are God's people, that he protects us, that he provides for us, and so on and so forth. But also allow it to challenge you. I think the one that maybe jumps out foremost in my mind is that only God gets to to be choosy. We don't get to be choosy. Allow it to challenge you. Remember that the body of Christ is universal. Don't allow racism to take up residence in your heart. So, let's pray and, um, and just ask God to help us to do this in the week ahead. Father God, we thank you that you have provided so much material in your revelation to us, the Bible, about what the church is. And we pray that in the week ahead, as we reflect on these things, that you would help, it, help us um, allow these truths to shape our concept of the church we, we, we pray that you would help us as a leadership and as a body here at Harvest to figure out the best model of church to pursue in these times. A model that ticks these different boxes about how you've defined the church to be. And then Father, we also give you permission to challenge us. If there's one particular thing that we need to work on in the week ahead and in the weeks ahead, please bring it to mind. We know, Holy Spirit, that you're the one who leads and guides us. And then also comfort us um, as we begin to realize just what an amazing thing it is to be a child of God in his church. The people of God, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.